Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Um, We're picking back up uh, in sermon series through John, and we've come to chapter 7, and our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 24. And let's begin by just reading these verses together. Remember, this is God's holy word, inspired, inerrant. Let's read together. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me, because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Amen. That's the reading of God's holy word. The Bible makes many astounding claims. I don't think any of them are more astounding than the following. The Bible claims that the one true God, revealed in the scriptures as Yahweh, who made the world and mankind in the beginning, entered into his own creation as a man a little over 2,000 years ago. He came as the man Jesus of Nazareth to the nation of Israel with whom many centuries earlier he had entered into a covenant relationship so that he might be their savior and king. And as the God-man, Jesus lived a perfect life, never committing any sin or error, always doing what is right, in his thoughts, in his words, in his deeds. And though both his own people and the rest of humanity were themselves wicked, 
He had not come to punish them, but to save them. If anyone doesn't believe that the Bible really makes those astonishing claims, I would encourage you, all you really have to do is even just read the prologue to this book, John's Gospel. John 1, 1 through 18. Pretty much everything I just said is articulated in just that one passage, even though it's also the storyline of the whole Bible. Now, if those astounding claims are true, as the Bible claims, how would you expect people to respond to him? If God really did enter into his own creation as a man, living a blameless life, proclaiming absolute truth, bringing a hope of salvation, well, you might think that men and women who were alive to see it might react positively, especially his own people, the Jews. But you would be wrong. The text we have come to in John's Gospel this morning tells us what actually happened. John 7, 1 through 24 is all about how people responded to Jesus in the nation of Israel, his old covenant people, when he came among them. And it really isn't all that pretty. In short, we see in these verses that Jesus ended up causing division among his covenant people, the Jews. Some did respond to him positively, but others negatively. We're also going to see in this passage that there were extremes in those groups. Some of the Jews hated him, wanted to kill him. But the passage also tells us why. In other words, it provides us with an assessment of what was going on in the hearts of these particular Jews to make them respond to Jesus in the way that they did when they met him. And all of this turns out to be instructive for us today. Because remember, Jesus has told us that as his disciples, as those who follow him, obeying his commands, proclaiming his message, his teaching, that people around us in the world are going to respond to us in like way that they did to him. We, like him, will end up causing division in the world. Some will respond positively to us and others negatively. Jesus himself put it this way in John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There it is, that division. So as we read and as we study John 7, 1-24, we're going to learn not only to expect this to happen, but also to understand something of why it does and how we should respond and think about it. So let's dive in, but before we actually dive into this text, I think it will be helpful since we've been out of John for a few weeks to remember some things about the context of this passage and the larger structure of the book. It's been a while, so let's just recap here. We can't forget, as we're moving through John, what you might call the larger floor plan of this gospel. Remember that John 
has decided to tell us his account of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that's quite different from the earlier three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. First, we see that he chose to tell us only about seven of Jesus' miracles. And in the book, he calls these miracles signs. Why? Because they point to something. They point to different aspects of Jesus' identity and mission. We've seen five of them already. The miracle of him changing water into wine at Cana, the healing of an official son, the healing of a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, multiplying five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 people, and then him walking on the Sea of Galilee to his disciples in the middle of the night. So that brings us through chapter 6, and now we've come to chapter 7, and what we're going to see is, as sometimes happens in this book, we will be in between miracles. So the next one isn't going to come until chapter 9. Second, we should remember that John also records various discourses or discussions between Jesus and various people. And John puts these into the book also in order to teach us who he is and what he came to do. So, for instance, we've already seen famous discussions between Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus in chapter 3, and Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. And then in chapters 5 and 6, these discourses, these discussions were actually attached to one of the miraculous signs that I just talked about, so that the discourse ends up explaining what the miracle signified about Jesus. So, for instance, in the last chapter, chapter 6, the so-called bread of life discourse, which Jesus had with the crowds. Well, it ends up unpacking the significance of Jesus's miracle of multiplying bread to feed 5,000 people. Now, here in chapter 7, we're going to see another one of these discourses. Today, we're just covering part of it. It's a discourse that's going to be attached to a feast. And that brings us to a third thing we need to remember. In this gospel, chapters 5 through 10, they contain a section of the book that scholars have called more recently the festival cycle in John's gospel, because it records events which took place around four different Jewish festivals or feasts. So back in chapter 5, the beginning of this cycle, we saw the events surrounding an unnamed feast. It just tells us they're a feast, doesn't tell us which one. Chapter 6, surround the Passover feast. Chapter 7 now is going to feature events which are connected with another feast, the Feast of Booths, sometimes called Tabernacles. As I pointed out before, this section of the book, this festival cycle section, it's marked by escalating conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. So, in other words, each time he goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of these feasts, he clashes with the Jewish leaders there. And their hostility toward him increases more and more. But, at the same time, his identity and his mission becomes is revealed with greater depth and profundity. So, one scholar has put it this way, 
The further we move into John's gospel, the wider he draws open the curtains on Jesus' identity and mission. His miracles grow bigger. His words grow bolder, all revealing Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, even God the Son. So as we move through this section of the book, we should expect to see more and more conflict, yes, But in the midst of it, we should expect to see more and more of the glory of Christ. Why? So that we might believe. So that our faith might be strengthened in him, as well as our awe and love for him. So, that's a little bit of the context. Now, let's go to chapter 7, 1 through 24, and let's dive into this part of the story. So it begins in verse 1 with that, The phrase, after this. So it's telling you chronologically that the events in this chapter follow, happen after the events of the last chapter. Remember what happened in the last chapter. Jesus fed the 5,000. He walked on the Sea of Galilee to his disciples in the middle of the night. And then he discoursed with the crowds at a synagogue in Capernaum the next day. So what's happening now happened after that. How long after? Well, we're not exactly sure, but it, it is true that in chapter 6, verse 4, it said that those events happened around the Passover. The Passover was at hand. The events in this chapter, chapter 7, verse 2, tells us the Feast of Booths was at hand. So we can look at the Jewish calendar and we think, assuming these two feasts happen one after another, we're talking about maybe six months that has elapsed between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. After this, then look at the rest of verse 2. We're told that he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, there is a backstory to this in the Gospel of John. If you go back to chapter 5, we're told about the last time he went up to Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders there had been stirred up because he had healed that man by the pool in Bethesda and told the man to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath day. And then, instead of backing off, he went on to claim that he was right in doing this because he himself was God the Son. He was making himself equal to God. And so we see that they had wanted to kill him, not only for violating the Sabbath, but for making himself equal with God. And what we see here in verse 2 is that ever since that time, Jesus had sort of been staying away from the region of Judea, ministering far to the north in his home region, the region of Galilee, where he was somewhat beyond the reach of the Jewish leaders at the capital city. But now, he's going to face a decision. Verse 2. Because it says now, the Feast of Booths was at hand. Now, the Feast of Booths, sometimes called Tabernacles, it took place, according to the law, on the 15th day of the 7th month of the Jewish calendar. It was a 7-day celebration. Well, it began and ended with consecutive Sabbath days, but in the middle they were to celebrate 
God bringing them out of Egypt and causing them to live in booths as they traveled through the wilderness. And so they would live in little tents, temporary dwellings throughout the week to commemorate how God had done that for them after the Exodus. And this is one of the three major feasts which Jewish males were required by law to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. They were to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. So the question was whether Jesus, who had been avoiding Judea for some time now because the Jews there wanted to kill him, would he now make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast as the old covenant law required, despite the fact that there was such hostility there toward him? Verses 3 through 5, we're told, this interesting tidbit that his brothers urged him to go. So you see it there. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, which affirms the perpetual virginity of Mary, denies that she had any other children. So they've interpreted the Greek word adelphos uh, here as not being translated brothers, like it normally is in contexts like this, but just relatives or kin. But Protestants, who largely deny the Marian dogmas of Rome as unbiblical, affirm that this is a reference to Jesus' male siblings. In fact, Mark chapter 6, verse 3 tells us that Jesus had four brothers, or we should say half-brothers, right? After he gave birth to Jesus, she gave birth to Jesus in her virginity, she then had four other children with, or four other sons with Joseph. And in fact, Mark 6, 3 tells us their names, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. At least two of these half-brothers of Jesus, James and Judas, or Jude, became leaders in the early church and even wrote letters that are included in the New Testament canon, most likely. They were the authors. But here we're told that at this point they did not yet believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God. And you can kind of imagine why. You know, like the other members of Jesus' extended family and friends who lived in his hometown of Nazareth, they had a hard time believing that this one who had grown up in their midst could possibly be the Lord's anointed, the great king and savior promised in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus himself in Mark 6, 4 said this, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. But I don't think that it was as if they were hostile to him like the Jewish leaders were. You know, at first when I read this, these verses, verses 3 through 5, I thought that they were mocking Jesus. But on further study and reflection, I don't think that's the case. For one thing, notice that they make reference to the works that he was doing. In other words, they were aware of and affirmed that he had been performing miracles. And no doubt, of course, they're sinners. 
I'm sure they struggled with some degree of jealousy, some degree of resentment toward Jesus, much like Joseph's brothers did with him in the book of Genesis, but probably to a much lesser degree. Yet, they probably had a certain level of respect for him, not only because of his impeccable character, but also because he's the oldest brother. And it could very well be that Joseph by this time is dead so that Jesus is the de facto leader of the family. It seems, rather, that Jesus' brother saw here in the Feast of Booths a perfect opportunity for their older brother. Remember, if he was famous and perhaps became rich, it would be good for them too, right? This was an opportunity for him to enlarge his following. There'd be thousands of Jews there from all over the country, many of whom were already his disciples. They'd heard of him. They believed in him. And they could now meet him in person. They wanted to see him. Think if Jesus' ministry in Galilee could cause such a stir in the nation that people would be talking about him all over. What would happen if he went up to Jerusalem and began doing miracles there? Could make him more famous, gain him a greater following, more influence. And a large following for Jesus would be good for them, be good for their family. In other words, I suspect their exhortation of Jesus here in verses 3 through 5 was motivated probably by selfish ambition, by a worldly glory. And I think that's why Jesus sort of presses back and rebukes them for it. This was a worldly way of thinking. It demonstrated that whatever they thought about their brother at this point, they hadn't yet come to truly understand and believe in him. Though they were Jesus' brothers, in other words, they weren't yet truly his disciples. As John put it in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. By the way, surely this was one of the most painful sufferings which Jesus had to endure during his earthly life. Despite his sinlessness, his masterful teaching, his miraculous works, not only did his own people, the Jews, despise and reject him by and large, but even members of his own family, his brothers, didn't understand him, didn't believe in him, at least not for a while. In fact, 1 Corinthians, 13, 15, or 1 Corinthians 15 seems to indicate that it was probably not until after he appeared to James alive after his resurrection, that perhaps his brothers were converted. Surely the prophet Isaiah spoke true when he predicted that Jesus as the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we also ought to just pause and reflect upon a couple of things that we can learn from all this. First of all, We see here that saving faith is not transferred biologically, is it? Not all who are born of Christian parents are going to be born again of the Holy Spirit. Oh, God is gracious and he does often save the children of believers. After all, they have great opportunity. They grow up hearing the gospel, but he doesn't promise to do so in every case. 
at the end of the day, saving faith must be understood as a gift of grace that God gives according to his sovereign will and is not inherited through the bloodline, nor does he owe it to anyone. And so we as parents, we pray urgently, persistently for the souls of our children. We appeal to the mercy of God. Lord, it says in your word that's a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But we must also pray, Lord, give us the grace to bear up under whatever you decide and to know that you, your decision is perfectly wise and good. We also learn in verse 5, That Jesus will often be a source of division even within families. When a son or a daughter, for instance, believes in Jesus, sometimes their parents won't approve. Sometimes they will be hostile toward them. The same might happen in a marriage when one spouse comes to faith in Christ and the other does not. In some societies, coming to faith in Christ might lead a person to be ostracized and even threatened by their entire family, by the whole community. Jesus warned of this, didn't he? Luke 12, 51 through 53, it says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he warns that we have to be willing to endure that kind of division for his sake. Even saying that he says, if we do not love him more than father, mother, sister, brother, we cannot be his disciples. Is that a high price to pay? Well, in one sense, yes. But is it worth it? Well, Jesus went on to say in that very passage I just mentioned, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Yes, you might keep peace with your family. But what of the eternal destiny of your soul? Jesus' response to his brother's suggestion is recorded in verses six through nine. There it says, Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now back in verse four, Jesus Jesus' brothers had urged him to go up to Jerusalem saying, show yourself to the world. But you see, Jesus knew that that would not have the effect that they thought it would. Because as he said, the world hates him because he exposes its sin. Now by world here, we shouldn't think the Gentile nations. Of course, that is true. But rather... It's the category of unbelievers, even including those like the Jewish leaders who were seeking to kill him. And how had Jesus borne witness that their works were evil? Well, by saying that they didn't 
understand the old covenant law, that their understanding of it was superficial, that they were hypocrites who performed their righteousness outwardly to be seen by men, that they were like whitewashed tombs who uh, focused on ceremonial cleansing and neglected the sin in their heart by denouncing them for imposing their rabbinical traditions upon people as if they were the commands of God and on and on. And you can imagine that kind of preaching didn't win friends and influence people. Not the Jewish leaders, at least, not their followers. It was part of why they hated him. They wanted to kill him, to put him to death. As Jesus put it in verse 7, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. We have to learn a couple things from that. Number one, Jesus' words in the New Testament They expose sin. And that includes our sin, right? Our hypocrisy. Our pride and self-righteousness. Our sexual immorality and bitterness and hatred. And when we find our sin being exposed by Jesus, we have a choice to make. Will we get angry and resist him like the unbelieving Jews in Jesus' day did? Or will we humble ourselves and repent in submission to his loving authority? In other words, will we act like the world or like true disciples of Jesus? The second thing we can learn is that when we accurately then relay the gospel and relay the teaching of Jesus and the larger teaching of God in the scripture, as he calls us to do, then we can expect that unbelievers that is, those in the world. And by the way, there's unbelievers in the church too, right? Like wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to hate us for it, just as they hated Jesus. And we can't try and avoid that, because the only way to do that is to neglect, to remain silent about, to alter and distort Jesus' teaching in order to make it more palatable to people. But that is to be unfaithful to him. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we go around being jerks, looking for persecution, evoking intentionally the hostility of unbelievers unnecessarily, but it means we must accept that the message we proclaim will cause division. To some, it will be offensive. Why? Because it testifies that their ideas are wrong. Their actions are evil. Just as it does for us. As Jesus put it in John 15, 18, you remember, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, knowing that his brothers didn't understand this, and that their suggestion that he go up to Jerusalem and show himself to the world was misguided, Jesus declared he wasn't going up to Jerusalem with them. As he put it in verse 9, you go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. Now we shouldn't interpret that as if, you know, John's confused. On the one hand, he said Jesus wasn't going up to the feast, and then two verses later he says that he does, or that Jesus was somehow lying said he wasn't going to the feast, and then went and did it anyway. No, of course not. 
It doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't going up to the feast at all, but rather, as we see in the next verse, it meant that he wasn't going up right away. His time to go wasn't their time to go. He wasn't going to make this public entrance into the city, but a private entrance. The time hadn't come for him to give himself up into the hands of the Jewish leaders yet. By the way, that is a little instructive to us too, isn't it? That Jesus wasn't reckless about persecution. He certainly wasn't afraid of persecution. He was willing to endure it when necessary. But he also didn't look for it all the time or refuse to ever avoid it. You know, sometimes he deemed it necessary to face persecution. At other times, he took measures to avoid it. By the way, the apostles did the same thing, right? And this is how I think we should approach it too. Sometimes we must expose ourselves to the threat of danger and persecution for the sake of the gospel. At other times, it's appropriate to take measures to avoid it if possible. And we should pray for wisdom to discern the right course of action in different circumstances. This too is part of thinking through how our message will divide. So we read in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So he arrived in secret. And for the first part of the feast, it seems that he laid low. Among the many thousands, hundreds of thousands perhaps, of pilgrims who flooded Jerusalem at that time. He could sort of blend in for a while. And it was a good thing too, because in verses 11 through 13, you see that the city of Jerusalem was a buzz about Jesus. The air was thick with tension, anticipating his arrival at the city for the feast. In verse 11, we see the Jews were waiting for him to arrive. You know, we're not sure what that meant. Maybe they had a spy at the city gates waiting to see and report to them when he came. Presumably they were hoping to seize him when he arrived. Verse 12 tells us that there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And once again, we see that the Jewish response to Jesus was divided. Some thought he's a false teacher, like the Pharisees say. He should be opposed. Others disagreed and at least thought, no, he's a good man, even if he isn't the Messiah like some claim. Interestingly, John points out there in verse 13 that for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. This reflects a theme that's actually going to be common in the book. In fact, later on in chapter 9, John tells us that, quote, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now, in that day, you didn't go, well, put out of this synagogue or go down to the street to the next. No, you were out of the epicenter of the Jewish religious community. This was a terrible thing to happen. No one would have wanted it. So while opinion about Jesus was divided, those who had a positive opinion of him refused to say so publicly because they're afraid of excommunication, of persecution, and censure by the Jewish leaders. In fact, later on in chapter 19, verse 38, you remember old Joseph of Arimathea in whose tomb Jesus was buried? He was a very wealthy man, the scriptures tell us. He sat on the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and it says of him, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly 
for fear of the Jews. It wasn't until after Jesus' death that he finally got up the courage to make his faith public by asking for the body of Jesus that he might give him an honorable burial. This is a sober reminder to us, isn't it? When we see people divide over Jesus, it's going to be a temptation for us, even as Christians, to try and play both sides. Some will try to keep their faith in Jesus relatively private in order to avoid the disapproval of those who reject him. But as Joseph of Arimathea eventually discovered, in the end, that just won't work. We can't keep our faith in Christ entirely private because it has entailments that are inevitably public. Those who believe in Jesus are called to obey him in their lives and to bear witness to him in the world. Even if it means suffering for his sake as a result. So there are certain circumstances where Christians might not, you know, broadcast their faith in Christ entirely. Um, they might keep it secret to a certain extent to avoid instant death, for instance. But ultimately, no Christian can keep their faith in Christ entirely secret in order to avoid the hostility of the world. You remember Jesus' words, Matthew 10, 32 through 33? So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So let's pray that as we see the division that comes in response to our life and witnesses, Christians, God will strengthen us to put cowardice to death, to acknowledge our Savior before men in this generation and entrust the outcome to Him. Jesus even told us, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Well, in verse 4, we see that Jesus wasn't motivated by cowardice when he delayed his journey to Jerusalem and entered the city privately. He's not afraid of making a public appearance at the feast because he ends up doing it. Verse 14, you see, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So all of a sudden, the man whom everyone was talking about and looking for appears in the capital city, standing in the house of his father, teaching his people. You can imagine that just must have flustered the Jewish leaders. It must have absolutely flabbergasted even his own brothers who thought he wasn't coming up. But notice how the crowds react. Verse 15, they marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Don Carson explains well, I think, what this probably meant. He says, they were astonished that someone who had not studied in one of the great rabbinical centers of learning or with one of the famous rabbis could have such a command of scripture, such telling mastery in his exposition. You've read enough Jesus to know what they're talking about. Well, in verse 16, Jesus responds. He explains where his teaching came from. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
It was common in that day, the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, for instance, they were always appealing to the authority of the rabbis, the tradition of the rabbis to support their teaching. But Jesus appealed to God. He claimed to speak with divine authority. In fact, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's account, it says this, that after hearing the sermon, quote, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. By the way, this is a reminder. All the education in the world is worthless, even detrimental to a teacher in the church if what he ends up teaching is false. Better to have no education and teach the truth from God to his people. Now, that doesn't mean that we as Christians should eschew all education for teachers in the church and and want ignorant pastors, (laughs) as if education were itself unimportant or even dangerous. Not at all. The Apostle Paul, by the way, was a highly learned man. He had studied at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great rabbis. And you can see in Paul's writing how his understanding of the word and his training had been used by God to help him be able to teach the word masterfully to the churches that he planted. But we have to make sure that the education of our teachers in the church is going to actually equip them to rightly handle the word. And I dare say, we can't be ignorant about this. The Bible college and seminaries that are actually going to do that are becoming fewer and farther between. But if it was the case that Jesus' teaching was from God, That begs the question, why did it cause such division among the Jews? Why did so many of their own religious leaders reject his teaching? It was from God. Jesus explains in verses 17 through 18, he says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Now listen to this. In essence, Jesus was saying that in order to recognize that his teaching was from God, a person had to have the right disposition of heart. The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees who taught the Jews is that ultimately they were interested in promoting themselves, not glorifying God. They wanted to gain a following for themselves, so they taught a system of religion that ultimately they had made up, or the rabbis before them, and which made them look very good. Do you remember how Jesus exposed this in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, where he said that they drew attention to their giving, that they offered ostentatious public prayers, that they made a public display of their fasting, all in order to be seen and praised by others? None of that was from God. They didn't care because they were seeking their own glory, not his. Oh boy, how that principle is still true today. There are many people who are happy to promote man-made teachings in the church in order to gain a following for themselves. Why? Because they're more interested in self-promotion than the glory of God. And we need to be able to detect and reject that. Looking instead for teachers 
who with wide-eyed zeal are obviously interested in glorifying the Lord so that they take pains to tell you accurately what it says in his word. Paul described it, 2 Corinthians 4, 2. He said, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but with open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. But Jesus said, if a person desires to know God's will, he or she will recognize his teaching as being from God. Because his heart hungers and thirsts for righteousness. His ears are attuned to truth. Because of that, he would recognize both in the teaching of Jesus. As Jesus would put it later on in John ten twenty seven, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. But you ask, how does a person get that though? How do they get that disposition of heart that allows them to recognize the teaching of Jesus as from God? And Jesus has explained this back in chapter 3 when he's talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, it's only when the Spirit of God regenerates a person's heart bringing them from a state of spiritual death to a spiritual life, taking out their heart of stone, giving them a new heart, that their desire will be to do God's will. And they will know whether Jesus' teaching is from God. And you can't give that to yourself. Spiritual life is a gift of God. He gives it to whom he wants, so that it's all of grace and all to his glory. That's why we look back on our salvation and we say, Thank you, Lord. I was dead. You brought me to life. And we pray for Him to do that work in the hearts of our friends and family and co-workers and neighbors because we know if He doesn't change their hearts, they'll never believe. Finally, in the last six verses of our text, Jesus exposed how the very Jews who boasted in the law of Moses themselves didn't keep it, but they flagrantly violated it. And so we read in verses 19 through 23. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, that is, it is Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? First of all, Jesus pointing out the obvious hypocrisy with the Jews. They boasted in the law of Moses, they were teachers of the law, and yet they were seeking to kill him. An obvious violation of the law of Moses, the sixth commandment. Now, of course, the crowds at large balked at that because they didn't know what he was talking about. But Jesus knew the Jewish leaders were there listening. And then second, Jesus is going back here and he's addressing the incident which had occurred in Jerusalem that had made the Jewish leaders want to start killing him in the first place. 
Namely, when he healed that lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day and told him to pick up his mallet and walk. But Jesus exposes the folly of this. He points out, hey, the father said, circumcise your children on the eighth day, and if that happens to happen on a Sabbath day when you're supposed to rest, you go ahead and circumcise them anyway. But if it's important that someone be circumcised on the eighth day, that their body might be in compliance with the ceremonial law of the old covenant, how much more important is that their whole body be made well? He says, look, do not judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. By the way, that verse provides a helpful qualification, doesn't it, to Jesus' famous words in Matthew 7, 1. He says, judge not that you might be judged. But that can't mean that Christians should never make moral judgments, as some say. Don't judge me. Because here he says, judge with right judgment. In other words, what Jesus is prohibiting back in Matthew 7, 1 is a sinful, self-righteous judgment of others, a hypocritical judgment, not judgment of others, period. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, we are to judge those who are within the church. God judges the world. Rather, here in John 7, 24, he charges people to make right judgments about themselves and about others. And his point here was to imply that the Jewish leaders... And that those who followed them had made wrong judgments. They'd been making wrong judgments about themselves because their rabbinical rules were focusing on external things. They were judging by appearances and they were neglecting the heart. You remember in Matthew 23, 25, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So here... They condemn him of Sabbath breaking when in reality they had jealousy and murder in their hearts. Brothers and sisters, how easy it is for all of us to become judges with wrong judgments. Condemning people for violating our man-made standards. Being outraged at the sins of others when our own sins are far worse holding others to account for minor offenses and turning the blind eye to the bitterness and the rage in our own hearts, let this charge of our Lord to judge with right judgment be a source of conviction to us that we might humble ourselves and seek His forgiveness and His grace, even this morning if you're in that spot. But the larger point in this context is that when people condemn the gospel and they condemn the teaching of Jesus... They're not judging with right judgments. And this too is important for us to understand and believe. Because guess what? Moral condemnation by unbelieving society can be tremendously intimidating, can't it? When the unbelieving world calls it dangerous bigotry to affirm the Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality. When it charges Christians with being science deniers, ignorant and backward for rejecting evolution in favor of the Genesis account of creation, or when they condemn biblical standards of justice as being rooted in the white supremacy of the West, and on and on. They're not judging with right judgments. Like the Jewish leaders did with Jesus in their day, for their own reasons. And we must not give in to that kind of moral condemnation 
lest we be intimidated and shamed into compromising our own trust and obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't give in to it. He called it out. He said, you're not judging with right judgment. I come back in my own heart quite a bit to 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5, where the Apostle Paul was facing these kinds of wrong condemnations in the church at Corinth, which he had planted by false teachers there. And he said, but with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. How important it's going to be for us as we see the division that the gospel causes, when the world falsely condemns us for wrongdoing, to fear God above men, to care about his judgment more than theirs. When God came to the earth as the man Jesus Christ, he caused division among those who met him. Some responded positively, some negatively. Today we've learned something of what that looked like and why it happened from John 7, 1 through 24. And what we've learned, I think, is going to be important because we can expect the world to respond the same way to us as Jesus' followers, if we are faithful to him. May we gain wisdom from this passage to remain faithful to Christ in the face of divided response to our identity and mission as his disciples in a hostile world. If you're here this morning and you would have to say that in your heart, as you examine your heart, you would have to say, you know, I'm on the other side of this divide. I haven't believed in Jesus. I've been going my own way, living according to my own standards and for my own interests. I would say the good news to you is that you can be reconciled to the God to whom you've been rebelling through Jesus. That this book goes on to tell you how he ended up laying down his life as a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of all who would put their trust in him and begin to follow him as, their, as his disciple. He invites you to come, repenting of your sin, trusting in him, and you can be saved from the only judgment that really will matter at the end of the day, and that is God himself. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time in the scriptures this morning. We thank you for your word, which is so powerful and clear. We thank you for the fact that you have sent Jesus into the world, that you have inscripturated, that we might have them too, the very words of Jesus and and the broader teaching that you have given to us in the word. We thank you that you've given us hearts to listen and to accept and believe the things that are in the scriptures. And we know that as we live faithful to them, some will respond positively and some negatively that many pressures will come to bear in this world as a result. Help us to learn wisdom for how to handle it and think about it. Even from our text this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.